Good evening. It's good seeing you all, being with you. Um, and I am going to make sure everything is plugged in just so, so that you can see what I'm seeing. I hope. All right. Good evening. Now I really mean it. Good evening. Before it was just more like filler. So no, it's good to see you. Let's pray before we start. God, thank you so much for how good you are. Um, Lord, what a blessing it is to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to be able to remember uh, what your son has done for us. Lord, you have called us to be holy. You've called us to be uh, unspotted from the world. Um, and as the bride of Christ, we want to be that so that when we uh, as, we await your com- as we await your appearing and as we see your coming, um, that we would see you in a way, that we would uh, meet you in a way that uh, reflects that holiness. God, as we interact with our culture and as we discuss um, ways that we can be Christ-like um, in our culture, God, give us wisdom, give us skill as we apply biblical principle. And uh, may what I say be biblical, would it be um, what is pleasing to you, and Lord, would it cause us ultimately to drive, uh, uh, cause us to go back to your word, in Christ's name, amen. So um, I've been asked to share the second part of our summer series, which is a discussion on the Christian and modern culture. Last week, Pastor Kent began the series going through First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, and emphasizing the theme of holiness. I, I just want us to read this passage. Uh, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all of your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And Pastor Kent really pronounced this theme that we as Christians ought to be consuming a knowledge of God and not a knowledge of culture. Meaning that our primary emphasis here on earth as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, as pilgrims awaiting his appearing, is to consume a knowledge of God. And so he brought out these three points. First of all, the study of God is the most practical of all studies. Theology is eminently practical. It's not simply just uh, a classroom activity that is geared more towards broadening the intellect. That it is practical. Second of all, God is holy. God is holy. This is uh, ultimately stemming from who he is, his essence, his character. And thirdly, holiness is an attribute of the goodness of God. Holiness is not the killjoy for the Christian. It is not a damper on, actually, what Mr. Basic kind of expressed even in his testimony earlier on, where, you know, prior to salvation, you know, he perceived life outside of God, outside of his holiness as freedom. And as Christians, sometimes we can perceive the holiness of God as really a, a hindrance to maybe joy or, or whatever. 
Holiness is an attribute of the goodness of God. And so as a Christian, the theological basis for our interaction with modern culture really is God's holiness. And so what I want us to uh, look at today is, uh, and, and I've been given the title of the philosophy of the Christian and modern culture. So philosophy, uh, philos, that's study, or, or love, sophie, uh, sophistry, that's, that's words or language. Uh, and so what we're talking about here more or less is how do we as Christians think? How ought we to think as we approach modern culture. And so I, if you'd like to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at uh, these four verses in Ephesians chapter 1. If you'd like to just look at the screen, that's fine too. But we're going to use this as the springboard for where we're going. Okay? So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, and to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now I want to bring your attention to a couple phrases here. First of all, the beginning of verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So if you know Christ, you were chosen by Him to enter into an eternal divine relationship. Why? So that we would be holy and blameless before Him. God has elected the saints to have a divine marriage, if I can put it that way, that we ought to be holy and blameless in Him. So in eternity past, He chose you, if you know Christ. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons. Again, this familial, this family relationship articulated by Paul here in, in Ephesians, where the Christian has been predestined to be a part of God's family. That's pretty incredible. That's a divine relationship. Now, this relationship ultimately has implications. First of all, remembering that God is the sole originator. God is the one that initiated this. God is the one that originated this relationship. He's the one that provides this relationship. It should strengthen our relationship to Him. In other words, we ought to live a life giving thanks to Him for the relationship that He's called us to. And we should be that much more thankful for the arranged marriage that God has ordained. Now, the concept of an arranged marriage is somewhat foreign here in, in you know, North America. In other cultures, arranged marriages are, are very common. And so we've been called to an arranged marriage in the sense that God has ordained us to be adopted into his family. And as the bride of Christ, we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We look forward to being united with Christ. Remember that we are not simply settling for a relationship with God through Christ. We don't love him simply because we're not supposed to love the world as if he's the next best alternative. So it's, it's, we don't approach the Christian life 
from the perspective of, well, I'm not supposed to love the world. I really kind of do. And I have this urge, but I'm not supposed to do that. So instead, what am I supposed to do? Well, love God. Okay? Let me, let me state it a little bit differently. Kind of in a negative way. The primary problem facing Christians is not the allure of the world. Instead, it's the forgetting and the failing to appreciate who God is and what he has done for us. The world is not too strong. Rather, the Christian's love for God is too weak. Okay? So the more intimate we are with him, read prayer. And the more we desire to know him through his word, through his people, our desire to please God will be greater and the allure of the world will be weaker. Okay? We sing that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, right? The last phrase, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that's true. Because our love for God grows, and as a result, the allure of the world will wane. We still have a sin nature. We still fight that. Now you say, what in the world does this have to do with modern culture? And does the world, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, is that the same thing as modern culture? I mean, are we... So if you're not familiar with 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, it says this. Love not the world. Don't love the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I know we focus a lot on the first part, but I'll tell you what, that second part is really sobering. Because, you know, in our culture, if God exists, if they believe that God exists, we know he does, but if they believe that God exists, God is love, love, love. And, and 1 John 2.15 says, those who love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why? For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, those are not of the Father, but of the world. And those things are passing away. But the one who does the will of the God, the will of God does what? He abides forever. So as we go forward here this summer, as we look in uh, we, we have these evening services and we're talking through the Christian's relationship to modern culture. Should you just substitute the world for modern culture? Okay? I, I want to be able to answer that question tonight okay? as we talk about a philosophy of the Christian and his relationship to modern culture. I would like to recommend a resource to you. This is a book. I believe it's in our bookstore right now. This is a book that I believe the young marrieds have gone through, Correct? recently. This is a fantastic book as it addresses not just world and worldliness, but the Christian and culture. Okay, it's written by uh, a believer, Randy Leedy. The book is called Love Not the World, Winning the World Against Worldliness. And there are separate sections in this book that address the Christian and how he interacts with modern culture. And in fact, I'm going to take several quotations from this book in light of tonight's sermon. So what I want to do is I want to compare culture and the world. Okay? I want to compare culture and the world. And it's really important that we define our terms, right? So what is culture? Well, according to this text, culture is the set of patterns of thought, communication, and behavior shared by a group of people living together as a society. Okay? That's culture. A set of patterns of thought, communication, and behavior shared by a group of people living together as a society. Now, compare that to the definition of the world. 
Again, this author uh, defines the world this way. The unbelieving in all generations who demonstrate their lost condition and their separation from God by developing and pursuing values that are in direct opposition to his holy character as revealed in the Bible. Okay? Now, I hope that you notice, notice as you're looking at this, there is a difference in tone of definition. One clearly has a negative tone. Okay? One, not so much. And that's intentional. All right. So, can we just say, since, let me, let me go back here. Looking at the definition of culture, set of patterns of thought, communication, behavior shared by a group of people living together as a society. That sounds pretty benign. Right? So, could we say that culture is morally neutral? I mean, it's just culture is just neutral? And what we have to remember is that culture is always made up of sinners. Right? I mean, this world is inhabited by sinners. And their culture will always reflect varying degrees of sinfulness. So if you put sinners in an area, what will come out is their sinfulness at some level. Now, that's not all that's going to come out, but it will be manifest. So we can't say something is morally neutral, like it's neither good. Let's see, I have godliness over here. Over here. It's over here in this, so I've got to make sure I do this. Okay. Godliness over here, and we have evil over here. Can we say if, you know, culture is just simply a set of practices, behaviors, and within a group of people, that it's just right in the middle? And we'd have to say no. So how would we describe it? Well, I don't know. This is kind of helpful for me. So it's a little bit left of neutral, but it's leaning towards evil. Why? Because that's man's bent. Right? Our theology, our study of the Bible informs us that man is totally depraved. When left to himself, he will pursue his own desires and he will not pursue the glory of God. Okay? So culture, even if it's just simply a set of behaviors, patterns that reflects a particular people group in an area, it's still inclined towards evil. Now, the world is evil as we define, as, as we see the world described in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, right? Or as we uh, read James chapter 1, verse 27, where it talks about pure religion, undefiled as this, that, that, uh, that believers help the fatherless and the widows, and that they remain unspotted from the world, okay? So what we're talking about when we talk about the world, we're not talking about the globe. We're not talking about the grass and the trees and the stars. Okay? Nor are we talking about culture. We're talking about an animate system. Okay? We're talking actually about people and their practices that are in direct opposition to God. Okay, so when Jesus is talking to his disciples the night before, they're, the night before he's, he's going to be crucified, and he's talking about the opposition they will face by the world, he's not talking about culture, and he's not talking about nature. He's talking about sinners in their sinfulness in opposition to him. Okay, that's really, really important. You say, okay, so where are we going with this and... and what about this whole kind of modern culture? Well, I'm glad you asked. Okay? What about modern, modern culture? 
Well, have you heard, I'm sure you've heard the term pop culture, popular culture, okay? Contemporary culture as promoted, this author defines it, uh, contemporary culture as promoted by the various forms of media, often, but not always, appealing to sinful lusts. Okay, so when we think of pop culture, you think of pop culture, certain things might come to your mind, just right off the top of your head, okay? And I'd venture to say uh, that many of them are probably not closer to the godliness spectrum. They're probably closer to the evil spectrum. So, so here's how I illustrated this. So if you have godliness and evil and moral neutrality, okay, just go in the middle, it's neither godly nor evil, slightly left, you have culture, just because culture is made up of sinners, okay? But then you have popular culture, which is often manifesting man in his selfishness and his sinful lusts, and it's, it's popularized by varying, various forms of media. We're not just talking about electronic media, but just you know, disseminated communication. And then you have the world, okay? So it's important that when we kind of, I, I think this is a helpful way of, of kind of laying this out. As far as, as far as modern culture, is that popular culture? I mean, is that just culture? Because when we talk about how we as believers are to interact with culture, modern culture in particular, it's important that we actually know what we're interacting with. Can I ask you a question? Is modern culture getting better or worse? Now, you laugh. You laugh. Hold on. A little chuckle. Okay? And we can put some verses to that. But I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful to look at some illustrations. All right, so I'm going to show you. I hope I don't make any enemies. All right, and I'm scaring Pastor Tim because he's right up front and center. All right, isn't modern culture synonymous with worldliness? Here's an advertisement. Okay, I don't know if you can read the, the print in the back, but this was an actual advertisement by Winston Cigarettes back in the 1940s and 50s. Okay, taste isn't the only reason I smoke. People are always telling me that smoking causes low birth weight. Talk about a win-win-win, an easy labor, a slim baby, and the full flavor of Winston cigarettes. That's an actual advertisement. Now, let's be honest. I don't even think the pro-choice element of our 21st century society would, would look at that and be in favor of it. Have we shifted a bit in certain aspects of our culture? Yeah. I mean, so when I ask you the question, what direction is our culture moving? Yes, we know that it's occupied by sinners, and it is inclined towards greater sinfulness. However, there are aspects of our modern culture that aren't explicitly hell-bent on evil. Okay? I'm going to show you another one, and this is going to kind of this is going to kind of reveal where I am in life, just with my family. So this is a picture that was hanging up in a store in our mall. The store is Justice. Okay, it's a store for tweeners, the girls in between the ages of 7 and 14. Okay, so this picture was hanging up. Just looking at the picture, you know, when I saw it in the mall, two things struck me. First of all, they're not all white. You have a lot of different cultures and nationalities represented in that photograph, don't you? Okay. 
Has that always been the case? No. Is that a good thing? Sure. I think it's a great thing. I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to the every tribe, tongue, and nation bowing before the throne. That's a blessing. So I look at that and I see it. You know what else I see? And father of daughters coming out here. Not everyone in the picture is supermodel rail thin. Now that's recent. But as a father of daughters, I am well aware of how mankind has hijacked the definition of beauty, the definition of femininity, and really assigned virtue to a clothing size and thinness. I mean, man looks on the outward appearance. Yes, that was true with Samuel, but it's also true today. So I don't know about you, I actually look at that and I'm really encouraged. Because when you look at society and you look at people, not everyone is this big. And don't think for a minute that, and I'm, I'm probably speaking to the choir here, but we evaluate ourselves based on what we see, whether we like it or not. And so do young girls. And so you have a clothing company that's making an effort to try to combat a very narrow definition of beauty and a very, I think, skewed definition of health with a simple picture. I'm kind of encouraged by that. Again, that's me, father of three daughters. We have these discussions, you know, at home. So from a 21st century modern culture standpoint, I don't think we can say that everything is bent towards evil. There are some aspects that seem to reflect common grace. Now, I want to read a quotation here because I think this helps us to relate the Christian and this ongoing tension between loving not the world and interaction with our culture, especially our modern culture. And this is kind of a longer quotation, so bear with me. As we seek to grow in discernment, and he's talking to believers here, an important point to consider is the fact that cultures and therefore some boundaries of worldliness are constantly changing. A neutral aspect of culture may take on moral significance for a time and then resolve to neutrality again as the world moves on to some new expression of ungodliness. In the 1970s, for example, many conservative Christians objected to flared pants, wired rim glasses, facial hair, and even floor-length skirts. The fact that these today are dead issues for the most part does not imply that these objections were misguided. At that time, thoughtful believers recognized a cultural significance in their day that is no longer apparent to us. So, it's a mistake to impose the sensibilities of one culture upon the other cultures, past, present, or future. Except where scripture is clear on universal human issues, only those intimate with a particular culture are positioned to evaluate boundaries of worldliness with accuracy. And it gets a little wordy here, but this last sentence is, 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 is key. Cultural distance always challenges and often hinders cultural discernment. So those within a culture, those believers within a culture that are intimate with that culture are more keenly aware of the worldliness within that culture. And as they pray for discernment, they recognize that that definition, 
the world is still the world. It's always going to be evil. It's never going to change and somehow become good. Yet, the objects of worldliness could change. All right? So again, I don't mean to make any enemies, and I'm not trying to. But I'm going to bring up a question. Okay. Are there certain aspects of our culture which literally on their own are neutral, yet associated with worldliness? Right. Let me illustrate. I put two instruments on the screen. Okay. One's a saxophone, one's an electrical, electric guitar. Which instrument is appropriate for worship? I gave you a, a, a false dichotomy because I'm having you choose either or. Okay? I have a cousin who's in the Church of Christ, and he would say neither because they didn't have any instruments in their worship. It's, it's all a cappella. Okay? Some might say neither because of what you associate those instruments with. I mean, they're both inanimate objects, yet don't both carry cultural significance? Don't both carry cultural associations? Sure they do. Within this room, you're going to get a diversity of opinions on that. And can I tell you, within a discipling and an evangelizing and discipling church, you're constantly going to get a diversity of opinions. Because the level of association differs from one to the next. One of the blessings of, of being able to walk a new believer through the word is seeing how God changes them. Because frankly, I could create a whole lot of confusion to a new believer if I immediately jump to worldliness and the Christian's relationship to modern culture, and then start cherry-picking the things I think that are worldly in his lifestyle and saying, you know what, those are parts of modern, modern culture that you really should separate because they're worldly. As opposed to God working through his word and making things clear. Right? Now, remember, and these are just some summary points, Remember that the unredeemed culture will always move towards greater worldliness, while believers are to be moving towards godliness. These are two opposite directions. I put on here 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 17, because verses 1 through 10, Timothy is being told by Paul that in the end times, perilous, you know, the, towards the end, perilous times will come, and there is a trajectory of bad to worse. So when I asked you the question earlier, so which direction is our culture going, you kind of chuckle, and it was kind of a loaded question. I know, I set you up. But many of you, I bet, were thinking of this, right? Things are moving from bad to worse. But you, Timothy, you're moving in a different direction because of the word, which is able to make you fully mature and complete in Christlikeness. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul is saying the same thing to the Corinthian church, that they, by reading God's word, are growing from glory to glory, from one, I would say one level of godliness, but they're growing more godly as they read the word and as the Holy Spirit changes them. Now, much of the worldliness attached to something in a culture is related to its association within that culture. 
And remember that both older and younger generations will naturally attach worldliness to something that has clear sinful associations, even if those associations are not as clear to other generations. Okay? So I was a second-generation Christian. Right? So my parents got saved when they were in their 30s, late 20s, 30s-ish. And I was told at a young age that there were certain things that weren't good and that they were worldly, that I did not understand. Because I honestly did not see the association. And you know what? I see the exact same thing playing out now as a parent, where I'm instructing my child, children. And, and I'll be honest with you, my wife and I are having conversations about associations and worldliness. What do we believe? Because this whole worldliness thing is somewhat fluid. Right? I mean, there are certain things that the world attaches to, and ultimately the world is the one that defines worldliness. They're the one that's attached, and when do they detach? And do I have to figure that out? So, part of the reason why I bring this up is because, oh, I'm sorry, this was just a, uh, part of the reason why I bring this up is, is because of, I think, the simplicity that God allows for us as Christians to live in because in one sense, we could be really, really confused. What's acceptable? What's worldly? What's part of our modern culture? Is this okay? And then constantly questioning. First of all, I think it's important to consider this. The only culture with which, within which our Father requires us to keep ourselves unspotted from the world is the one, or the few as the case may be, in which we actually live. From time to time, we may have occasion to try to evaluate some issues within another culture, but the difficulties raised by cultural distance require us to be reserved and tentative in such judgments. Basically, that means this. So when I was a teen, I always thought it was cool when I heard stories of European countries that legalized alcohol to teens. Right? In Germany, you can drink beer and when you're 12. Why can't we? You know, Classic adolescent thought. Sorry, adolescents, if you're in here. I don't live in that culture. I'm here. So, I mean, when it comes to that particular issue, it's pretty cut and dry. God has called you to live in a particular culture, and I think sometimes, just from the outset, sometimes part of the confusion is when we think, well, this might be okay in this culture, but it's not okay in my culture, but if it's okay in this culture, and if I move to that culture, then I guess it's okay. And we can kind of salve our consciences. And more often than not, when we do things like that, really we're just trying to justify an aspect of, of our lives that, that frankly the Holy Spirit might be convicting us about. And, and at that point, at that point, you know, are we really seeking the glory of God? Are we seeking the holiness of God? Or are we simply looking for an out? Are we looking for a way to be able to do what we want? Okay. So, a couple concluding thoughts as we go from here. We must be patient with cultural transitions. And again, we're talking about a philosophy of the Christian and modern culture. So this is very much a work in progress. And by the way, there's other pastors here that I've, you know, I listen to them preach. They inform me theologically. But as far as this is concerned, you know, I'm sure them, the elders, you probably have a say in this as well, where this can become more complete and more biblically refined than what it is. So, 
We must be patient with any cultural transitions, and it isn't our job to convince someone that something is not worldly, even if it was worldly several decades ago. Okay? I really want us to think about, especially that second part. It's not our job to convince someone that something is not worldly. I think we should just go straight to 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, where the essence of Christian liberty is being willing to defer what are my rights for the sake of the growth and the advancement of my brother or sister in Christ. And there is, that, that brings great joy. That brings great uh, unity to the body of believers. And there can be a lot of angst and a lot of tension when it comes down to a point of disagreement where one person thinks something is worldly and I don't. And don't they know that that was an old-fashioned way of looking at things? And why don't they just catch up with the times? And maybe if we just kind of, if I just kind of try to persuade them and really show them. If we're not careful, we could be steamrolling through the conscience of a brother or sister and actually becoming a stumbling block. Second of all, we must defer to the weaker brother when our decisions will influence his walk with the Lord, and we kind of touched on this. Thirdly, I think we must be gracious with those believers who differ from us, recognizing that we too are still growing and that we're spiritual works in progress. How many of you have arrived? None. I, I haven't. I'm still growing. There are things that are me that are changing, and praise God they are, because you know, there's, there's often where we kind of wince when we think about some of the things we said and did as Christians when we were less mature, right? People are still very much works in progress. Fourthly, we must honor the God-ordained authority structures placed in our life, and we must listen along to what they say and value their wisdom. I put here Hebrews 13, 17. This is ecclesiastical leadership or church leadership. could even include those who have discipling relationships within you where you, you're asking for their input and getting it. Titus 2, where it's obviously that's very familiar with us, where we have the older teaching the younger and listening to the words of someone who perhaps has lived a little bit longer and has a bit more experience and is spirit-governed and maybe we don't necessarily agree initially, but we still need to listen long and give that respect. And then fifthly, we must have the Bible as our authority and never use it simply as a tool to justify what we like. The Bible is not a, a source book for being able to defend my personal preferences, especially as it relates to me and my engagement in modern culture. Okay. So that when I look at the Bible, ultimately my goal is to bring glory to God. And I do that by being a believer, by being part of his family, but by being holy. And, and have an ongoing pursuit of becoming more like Jesus Christ. And, and becoming more like Jesus Christ, and I, I love how Pastor Ken has put it this way. When we become a disciple of Jesus Christ, we allow for him to micromanage our lives to where, to where we don't just simply have a one-and-done evaluation and then say, okay, well, this is settled. I can move on. But our lives 
as, as we study God's word, we're constantly being refined. There's an ongoing process of growth where there might be something truthfully that in light of a brother or sister or in light of a greater sensitivity to, to where I am in the season of life, I might have a different response and maybe put off something when before I really didn't see it as much of a deal at all. Or it may be that something that I was so convinced, so convinced, so much so that when I saw persons A, B, and C doing this or supporting this, I felt really upset. And I, I, I felt like there was, you know what, as I grow, there's a sense of, you know what, the trajectory of their lives is, is growth and sanctification. Their spirit governed, they're, they're, they're serving. So, huh, maybe I should be more gracious to them. All that to say, this is very much a work in progress. I know I said this before. But a, a philosophy of a Christian as he or she relates to modern culture um, is something that I think, as I said before, it's ongoing, but it's also, it has an end goal. And the end goal is Christ-likeness. The end goal simply isn't compatibility with a culture. It's not simply getting what we want and somehow having this intellectual, you know, foundation. It is lifestyle. It is, as Pastor Kent said before, you know, the holiness of God is ultimately practical. Theology is ultimately practical. And it's going to look like change in our lives. I hope this has been encouraging to you. I'm looking forward to hearing the other pastors as they develop this and uh, working through the word together with you. All right, let's pray. God, thanks so much for this evening. I thank you for the time to just unwrap some principles here from the word. We thank you that, that we have been called to the family of God. We thank you that, um, that we've been adopted into a family and, Lord, that we've been called to holiness. And as a result of being called, Lord, we've been uh, given the opportunity to um, be distinct, to live in this world, but certainly not be of this world. God, give us wisdom and discernment, even as Pastor preached this morning about not being in the Word and using systems of just rules and regulations to somehow govern spirituality. God, May we refrain from a judgmentalism. May we refrain from a, a self-assigned spirituality. But instead, skillfully walk the road, the careful road um, that you've called us in, especially within our culture, where there are so many things that seem to be growing, going in opposition. But Lord, we know that the king is coming, that he will make all wrongs right. We do know that, that we are pilgrims and sojourners here on this earth. And as a result, we must live in a way that you are given glory and that we become more holy. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.